1: We're most fortunate to be joined by Philip Giraldo, Assistant Professor in International Studies at Xi'an Jiaotong Liverpool University in Suzhou, a joint venture university between Xi'an Jiaotong and the UK's Liverpool University. Dr. Giraldo has a PhD in Comparative and International Politics from Canada's Queen's University and until last year had been teaching at Trent University in Ontario. His research interests include populist government foreign policy, France's foreign policy vis-a-vis its Eurozone partners, and theoretical interest in interstate hierarchies. The professor's research has been published in European Politics and Society, Mediterranean Quarterly, The Review of European and Russian Affairs, among others. He co-edited a special edition over a two-year period for the Journal of Humanity and Society titled The Emotional Dynamics of Backlash Politics, which I hope we'll have time to talk about, as well as the grant he won in 2018, enabling him to conduct and publish the results in International Journal. Our primary focus here, though, is on the books the first of which was Eurozone Politics, Perception and Reality in Italy, the UK, and Germany, and published by Rutledge in 2016. His most recent effort, a co-edited volume with Professor of International Relations Daniel Weiner at the Hebrew University of Jerusalem, Populist Foreign Policy, Regional Perspectives of Populism in the International Scene was published last year by Halgrave MacMillan. Professor Garlando, Philip, thanks so much for taking the time to talk with us today about your recent books and thoughts on geopolitics more broadly. My pleasure, Keith, good to be here. Thanks, Philip. Let me start uh, by asking you to share a bit about your academic experience at Trent University as an assistant professor in political studies. In particular, can you share a bit about the courses you taught, some of your primary readings, and elaborate a bit on as you wrote in the acknowledgments of Eurozone politics, how you improved your ideas through the practice of teaching European politics? So I taught at Trent University, which is
2: a relatively small university in Ontario. Most foreigners actually don't know the university. Most Canadians Perhaps do, but most foreigners do not. And the department that I taught in, it only had an undergraduate program. It didn't have master's or PhD. And it was a teaching intensive position. So I taught a total of eight courses per year. And all the courses were related to international relations in one way or the other. Some focused on international security. Others focused on institutions. Others focused on questions like democracy. Others focused on populism, on hierarchies on globalization. So it was a very teaching intensive uh, experience there, I would say, whereas the position I have now
1: is, is a lot less teaching intensive and much more research focused. Thanks, Philip. You've been a student, teacher and academic in Canada, as, sure. as you were just sharing there. You've done research in your You have an Italian heritage, are fluent yeah, in yeah. Italian and English, yeah. right? French and Spanish. Yeah. yeah, sure. um, yeah given your Italian-Canadian uh, foundation, so to speak, does your new academic assignment at a Chinese UK joint venture university indicate a change of research focus?
2: Yeah, so you know, I,
1: I got a really good offer
2: from Xian Tong, Liverpool University. I'm teaching two courses per year now rather than eight. I'm teaching masters and PhD students, whereas before I did not. And so it was a step forward in my career. Yeah, I have more time to do research. I'm publishing more. Consequently, I've, I've published a, a lot more in the in the past year and a half. You know, in fact, I would say last year and a half have been perhaps the most successful from my career in terms of publishing. Yeah, I have s- several articles coming out. They, they're they not officially available yet uh, because they're going through the process of proof editing, but they've been accepted by British uh, and American journals. And so they'll be coming out shortly this year, actually.
1: Wow, great. That's encouraging to hear. So, congratulations uh, on that level. It really does uh, sound like a a step up for you. Let me share something the late Stephen Tolman, author, educator, philosopher, uh, when he was asked if he thought of himself as a writer, he he replied, and I quote, Yes, I suppose I think of myself as a writer. I, I get more direct and intense satisfaction out of writing something to my own satisfaction that I do out of for instance teaching and if the choice is between being a writer or being a teacher I'm a writer i'm i'm not sure that being a writer is an honorable way of spending a whole life but that's another matter i thought you would find that interesting coming from someone as influential as he was and wanted to ask you the same question at this point in your career Do you consider yourself uh, more a writer or a teacher?
2: I, I consider myself an educator, and I think teaching and writing are both forms of being an educator. They're different forms of being an educator. So writing is about the production of knowledge. So when I'm writing, certainly when I'm publishing, I am making a contribution to existing debates in the field of international relations. And I'm making an original contribution, as are all my colleagues and other professors who are publishing. This is one of the uh, criteria of getting published, is that you're making an original contribution. And then your work will be read by others, and they they will learn from what you wrote. They might agree, they might disagree. But whether they agree or disagree, they're learning something. And then they position themselves in relation to what you wrote, and then you read their work. And then you learn something after reading their work. So there's this constant engagement, this back and forth between groups of scholars writing about the same topic. And so the educational aspect there is restricted to a small group of experts. So, for example, as you mentioned in the introduction, my primary areas of research interest are interstate hierarchies and populism or populism and foreign policy. Around the world, there are probably, I'm guessing here, but it's an educated guess, pun intended maybe 25, 30, at most 50 people working. And so we are working to expand the horizon of knowledge in these areas. And sometimes this knowledge can filter through to broader society. For example, some colleagues, they consult governments, they consult ministers. You know, others write reports for think tanks that are then used by public officials. I think that highlights that writing and research uh, is an integral part of the process of education or educating. It's not separate from it. And then in teaching, what I'm it depends what I'm teaching. I'm I'm disseminating the knowledge that I've accumulated or that I some, that in some cases I have myself created in the sense that I present some of my own arguments that I develop on my own. But usually I only do this to advanced students. If I'm teaching first-year students, I'm teaching them the basics of the discipline. And the basics of the discipline are the concepts the major theories, the major case studies. And so that that teaching is very different from, say, the teaching I would do to a master's or sure. a PhD student.
1: Sure. Thanks, Philip, for uh, sharing uh, your thoughts on that. Well, after we had spoke recently, uh, you sent me a link to uh, your blog where you, you do some writing, which is in part why I asked that last question. And it includes, your blog does uh, observations about travel and language and, and literature and I, I wanted to ask you uh, two questions first uh, in the acknowledgments of your first book eurozone politics you also mentioned the significance of the eclectic indulgence book club and i'm assuming that was uh, while you were at queens university and as you put it it enriched my intellectual and spiritual life really no small praise for a for a book club there Do do you mind sharing a little bit about your feelings in this regard as insight into what makes Professor Orlando tick? Well, when I lived in Toronto, uh, in Canada,
2: I was a member of this book club called Eclectic Indulgence. And so I was an active member from 2008 or 2009 until I moved to China. And this is a classics book club. So what this meant was we only read the classics of literature from antiquity to the present. And this was very enriching because in my academic life, most of the texts that I read are very modern theoretical or empirical social science texts, which lack context and which absolutely lack, say, any discussion about some of the deeper questions like the human soul or existence and love, relationships, these kinds of things. And so the classics novels so certainly the the great ones they illuminate this part of life in a way that leaves a lasting impression in a way that expands the imagination in a way that leaves you impacted one way or the other uh, and so um, and sometimes these books are based on history and 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 then i, I would learn a lot about uh, the history the historical context which would then influence my teaching so one example is the the, uh, the masterpiece of of Tolstoy war and peace was based on, the con- well, the context was the Napoleonic Wars, which impacted most European countries and especially Russia. So the book talks about the lives of the main characters, their families, their internal worlds, but it also connects this to the political international events at the time, which were the Napoleonic Wars, which were historically important. And I learned a lot about this period from reading the book and then I, when I would talk about the French Revolution and the, and the later wars that sparked, I would bring some of the lessons that I learned in Tolstoy uh, to my class. And students almost always appreciated it sure. because, sure, talking about structures and theories can be interesting. Um, I, for most students, it, pro- it probably is not. But you know when they hear about how it impacted the intimacy in families in Russia in the early 19th century... And how relationships were, were either torn apart or they were strengthened, uh, how culture changed because of these events. This is where students become more interested in some of these events. So the book club was very rewarding. The other members I became good friends were all similar, similar age, similar profile. And we would meet every month to discuss this book. And that in itself was very enjoyable because I find discussing what you read enhances the learning of what you're reading. And so I would often read a book, I would have my discussion with them about the book, I would learn a lot from hearing their perspectives, I would learn a lot from them giving me feedback on my perspective. And then I would write an essay, and I would share it on my blog. It's just because I want to I want to preserve my thoughts on some of these texts, because later, it becomes useful to see
1: uh, what I wrote. Sure, it's interesting. And I think in terms of your interest in hierarchy, your change of locale to China may be quite, <laughs> yeah, quite a sure. fruitful one longer, sure, sure. longer yeah, term. Yeah, sure. hey, I noticed on that blog that you had a review of Mary Beard's delightful uh, SPQR. Yeah. Um, and you mentioned in that piece, it allows you to indulge in your enduring, and I quote, your enduring fascination with ancient Rome. Yeah. Um, yeah. Does that follow from being Italian or or yeah. or is an interest in ancient history and an acquired taste? In in my case, it certainly does. So I was born and raised
2: in Toronto, Canada, but my mom brought me to Italy frequently, almost every year, when I was a kid, and I continue to go almost every year as an adult. And I continue I still do. And my ancestral town is Salerno, and very close to Salerno. There are very well-preserved ancient Greek and Roman cities and sites. And I, I, ever since I was a kid, I would see them and I, and I would just be endlessly fascinated thinking about the people that lived there, that built these structures thousands of years ago. And they're also my ancestors. When I have free time, and it's usually in the summer, I do try to read some texts that do a good job in revealing what it, what it was like to live during that time. And you know, Mary Beard is one of the top scholars on ancient Rome in the world. I, I've also evaluated other important texts on, on ancient Rome. This interest, incidentally, has allowed me to connect it to my research on populism because populism existed in ancient Rome. And so uh, one thing that a lot of people don't know is that these cycles that we're seeing now, of say the rise of populism around the world, are not unique. They have, they have their ancient equivalents. And so if, because they have their ancient equivalents, It suggests that it reveals something about politics that is enduring, that is cyclical. And so that in itself is fascinating.
1: Sure, yeah, interesting. And I was going to ask, but it seems like you've answered it. Your undergraduate major was in politics and public administration. Is that related to that ancient history kind of?
2: No, so it's interesting. When I did my undergrad, my goal was just to get an undergraduate degree and become basically a bureaucrat. So this program, where I did my my bachelor's degree, it's public administration, because it's a program in Toronto that trains people who, who work in the public sector at various sure. levels. That was my goal. I didn't have any objectives beyond that. But then in my third year, I had a class on the Cold War, and it was taught by a Russian-Canadian professor, and he, he changed my life. Got, this is where I discovered that I I really enjoyed international relations, and I was really good at analyzing international relations, and I wanted to continue studying international relations. So in my third year, I decided to switch my focus from administration to foreign policy. So I looked at Canadian foreign policy in the Middle East, and I wrote an undergraduate thesis on Canadian foreign policy and the Arab-Israeli conflict. And then I applied for a grant for a master's, And it was a very generous grant. It was the most prestigious grant at the time. And I won. And that's why I went to do my master's. Because at the end of my BA, I was already applying for jobs uh, in Ottawa. Uh, Maybe I would go work in the Foreign Service. That was my goal. But then I won this grant. I went to do my MA. And then during my MA, I applied for another grant, which was very generous. Uh, And I won. And that's why I went to do my PhD. Uh, It just kind of happened. Uh, A sequence of events uh, led me to being a professor of international relations. It was never planned. It was never part of my original uh, goal.
0: I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready to eat meals. Every fresh, never frozen meal is chef crafted, dietitian approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including calorie smart, protein plus, and keto. These are two minute meals. slash nbn50 to get 50% off. Sure.
1: Yeah, good story there. Well, speaking of politics and public administration, you open the introduction to your first book, Eurozone Politics, with reference to the Maastricht Treaty. And I quote, on February 7, 1992, European heads of government met in Maastricht, Netherlands, to sign the Maastricht Treaty. It was a pivotal moment in the history of European integration, brought to life by both external and internal pressures. Regarding the former, the collapse of communism and the reunification of Germany helped to create the impetus for deeper integration, because for some countries, especially France, this was essential to tame the power of Deutschland. End of quote. Can you share with us how you then go on to frame your book's narrative, and the, and the relevance of often overlooked details, such as the significance of the Maastricht criteria in the events that subsequently transpired, especially as you document in relation to the case of Italy in terms of media and elite rhetoric offered as rationale for European integration, and the negative implications of not adopting the euro as a currency. Yeah, so the Maastricht Treaty was an agreement. The most important feature of this
2: agreement was the euro, that is, the agreement to create a common currency. And the rules of the currency were strongly influenced by the budget orthodoxy or the economic paradigm of, of Germany, which many call ordo liberalism. And this is the idea that debts and deficits must be avoided or or must be manageable that public spending is not conducive to growth that the state should have a minimal role in helping enterprises succeed and so this was this was a challenge for italy because it had very high debts and deficits it had a very active state its state was very active in the economy when the agreement was announced on paper it did not meet the criteria which included having a debt of, that is 60% of GDP, having a deficit that is 3% of GDP, having a, a certain inflation rate. And so it became a, a kind of national mission to achieve these objectives, that is to reform society and the state so that it was in accordance with the master criteria. Now, the reason why this was a big deal in Italy was because it, has a, it had a reputation as being a bit of a laggard. It still does. And so this was an opportunity to, for Italy to prove to other Europeans that, no, it's not a laggard, that it, can, it, it has the capacity to carry out reforms and to perform as well as other European states. It has the capacity. And it did. It, it did. And when the deadline arrived, uh, Italy met the, most of the criteria and it was able to enter the euro in the first round because there were successive waves of countries that entered the common currency. So um as emphasized in my book, the euro the euro was more than just about budgets and deficits and sharing a currency. It's also about geopolitics. And the geopolitics of the Eurozone was was hierarchy and, and specifically German power. And certainly France was motivated in part to stem or reduce German power. And there was this there was an idea held among many in France that sharing a currency with Germany would ultimately equalize the relationship between France and Germany. And in in some sense it has because the European Central Bank operates on the basis of unanimity and France and Germany each have one vote as does a tiny country like Malta. So regarding decisions on the the European Central Bank, all countries are equal. But then when the Euro crisis struck Europe, Germany had the most power because it, it had the resources to bail out countries that were failing basically. And so it could dictate their Policy, regardless of what democratic majorities wanted uh, in the countries receiving this money, right. this is something I've witnessed directly when I was in Greece. I have a chapter on Greece uh, in the book. The majority of Greeks voted against the terms of the agreement, which was austerity—that is, cutting public spending, increasing taxes, cutting services, cutting pensions, cutting uh, public servants, public servant jobs. They were they expressed this opposition in a referendum. Uh, but the government ultimately caved in uh, because Germany said, well, if you don't accept these terms, you have to leave the euro. So this is how Germany could exercise its power. And it did. You know, this was during the acute phase of the eurozone crisis.
1: Thanks, Philip. Insight into European politics. The introductory chapter goes on, of course, to describe the structure and content of the, the chapters. But what's especially noteworthy is that you make clear early on just what it has meant to you and your own thinking about European integration. And here, here I quote, It is partly for this reason that in the past seven years, my views on the euro have radically changed. Initially, I was a typical europhile, believing in the intrinsic goodness of European integration, and in the notion that deeper moves towards supranationalism would benefit Europeans and help to create a continental-sized power that could rival China and the U.S. I still think that deeper ties between Europe's peoples are a good thing, despite the hodgepodge of often competing nationalities, languages, and territories. Europe does have a shared history and culture rooted in the classical world, the rise of Christianity, and modern science. But I, like many others, underestimated the primacy of the nation as a focus on loyalty, and I did not envisage that these national loyalties would reemerge with ferocious intensity after the effects of the eurozone crisis came to the fore." End of quote. "Can you share with us, as you did in the book, how unfolding events eventually led you to, as you put it, become a euroskeptic in the language of Europe's political discourse, although not in the sense of being against Europe or the EU? Yeah, if I had the choice, I would rewrite it now
2: because the term skeptic is now a very loaded term and it has a lot of negative connotations. What I was referring to was I became skeptical of the euro, of the currency. And the reason I became skeptical of the currency was because I previously had defended it as being potentially an instrument of economic growth and well-being. And then I witnessed firsthand the economic devastation that it had caused in places like Italy, uh, Spain, and Greece. Uh, you know, at the height of the crisis, for example, so this is seven, eight years ago, unemployment in Greece was uh, 28%. You know, in other countries, this would lead to a collapse. Uh, and in Greece, it almost did. In Italy, I think it was between 15, uh, over 15 and in Spain, it was over 25%. After the crisis, many emigrated because of this, including many people I know, many people that, I, that I've known since I was a kid in Italy, they left the country because there was no hope for them. Many went to either the UK, many went to, many went to Germany, some went to Canada. So that's what I was referring to, As I became skeptical of the currency, and then I realized my ideas about the currency were, were wrong.
1: So you'd change a bit if you were going to revise or do a second edition.
2: I still think that for Southern European countries, the currency has recovered from the acute phase of this crisis. But still, it's not optimal for, say, a country like Italy to share a currency with, say, a Northern European country that is much richer and more developed. In the absence of mechanisms of redistribution at the European level, So there's a lot of economic theory to back this. In fact, many American economists, such as Paul Krugman, they actually predicted the euro would lead to this precisely because you have very different countries sharing the same currency. It tends to penalize the weaker country because it has an overvalued currency. So, you know, I have a European passport. I am a major beneficiary of European integration. I I love the fact that I can travel freely across Europe. Uh, that i can i don't have to change currencies when I travel among member states of the euro this is this is all great, but I also realized that the euro did not live up to its promises. so in my book, actually, I actually document all the promises, most of them in any case, that were presented in the major newspapers that is the mainstream newspapers where officials and their and journalists journalists sympathetic to them engage in a concerted effort to convince citizens that this was worthwhile, that this will increase our standard of living, that this will, you know, some, it was sold in ways that were, were plainly exaggerated. And so I, I, I document actually in my book, okay, this is what the promises were, this is what happened. So one can recognize this and then also recognize the euro is part of the European Union. It is a, it is, and that is, it is a political construction that is not reducible to economic costs and benefits. So one can sustain, yes, the euro has been harmful, but because it's a political project, it's still worthwhile because there are other uh, objectives, such as creating a politically unified structure in Europe. I would also add, you know, when I wrote those words, it was around the time when the United Kingdom Independence Party in the UK pressured the then Prime Minister of the UK, David Cameron, to call a referendum on British membership uh, in the EU. One of the things they cited, actually, was the euro. They said, look what the euro is doing to Europe. This project is a disaster. And they succeeded. They succeeded in getting the UK out. So that's what I was referring to nationalism in that quote. It showed that for millions, tens of millions, the nation was still the primary focus of loyalty and, and Brexit was demonstrated this. And I remember very vividly many predicted that after Brexit, there would be a Frexit, there would be Italy exit, there would be a Grexit because there were parties and groups in the countries there are that want to take the the country out of the EU, so this domino effect did not occur. So some of the more pro- pessimistic prognostications did not occur, which is good. Nonetheless, the you know the eurozone crisis generated a lot of problems, not only the economic ones that I mentioned, but also contribute to Brexit.
1: Sure. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I remember that period. In your second chapter of eurozone politics, I saw your reference to Brubaker's 1996, A Nationalism Reframed, and thought also of his Citizenship and Nationhood in France and Germany, published, somewhat ironically, the same year the Maastricht Treaty was signed. In that earlier work, he he makes the case that debates about citizenship in France and Germany were really debates about what it means to belong to the nation-state. Brubaker equated the politics of citizenship with the politics of nationhood and argued, and I quote, it pivots more on self-understanding than on self-interest. The interests in forming the politics of citizenship are ideal rather than material. The central Mm. question is not who gets what, but rather who is what, end of quote. Is it accurate to say that you tap into this uh, distinction?
2: Yeah, because the theoretical framework I elaborate in my book is called Constructivism. And Constructivism looks at how national identities influence politics, both domestic and international. And it looks at the content of these identities and how these, these identities explain things like conflict or cooperation, can explain things like the rules that emerge in an agreement so for example going back to the maastricht criteria and the rules that emerge this partly emerged from a very important element of german culture on the role of the state in society and because it was it was and still is the most powerful state it can it could then influence bring its own preferences preferences which are influenced by the by its culture and by its identity To negotiating table and then the final agreement will reflect this and then then you have for example france which has a more what they would call dvg's identity that is their identity is more comfortable with state intervention in the market with industrial strategy with developing national champions and france brings this to the negotiating table and sometimes germany concedes to some of france's preference but the general theoretical idea of constructivism is that ideas lead to decisions and political outcomes. And, and so this is what he's referring to when he says it is the ideal rather than the material, because other scholars would say, no, it's the material. So other scholars would look at the gains and losses. Uh, what, what are the gains? What are the economic gains and losses involved in this agreement? Who wins? Who loses? Do the winners have influence? Do the losers have influence? That is how you determine political decisions and political outcomes. This is an ongoing theoretical and perhaps even philosophical disagreement in the literature. To some extent, it probably can never be resolved, but it, it does allow for fruitful, say, discussion between different scholars. And in my book, I, I agree with, with Brubaker, who, by the way, was, you know, he's assigned. He was assigned during my master's and my PhD because he's one of the most important constructivist scholars. Uh, and so most most master's and PhD students of international relations, or at least ones that study constructivism, will read Brubaker.
1: Well, yeah, and I wanted to tell you that idea he footnotes in his book, and it comes from influential Professor Jean Cohen. And I mentioned that because she's been around a long time, and she may be a different generation than you and, and some of your sources. But it, it seems like you guys are going in the same direction. And she's got a book out, I think came out 2022, called uh, Civil Society and Populism, something to that effect. You're definitely um, running with uh, the big dogs, as one way to put it, right? <laughs> hey, I wanted to ask you, somewhat related, your fifth chapter is titled Perception Meets Reality in Italy. Um, oh, yeah. Can can you share some of your your analysis or thinking that allowed you to title a, one of your chapter sections there? The euro helped to disincentivize reform. I was just I was curious. Hey, what's the backstory here that that would be important to understand? Yeah.
2: And it, so the euro was sold as a solution to the to the country's to many of the country's problems. Certainly, it's economic problems such as such as underdevelopment in the south. I, I documented this in this in my book, the highest Italian leader said this, uh, that it would help with economic development in the South, it would help to generate investment, it would help to generate growth, it would help to generate jobs. So people ascribed meanings to the euro, not everybody, but a lot of people did in the media and in, in, among the political class, which, which then filtered through the media to people. And they ascribed meanings to the currency that did not correspond with the reality of the currency now the thing is many critical thinkers saw this but they were very much in a minority and in fact they were often ostracized i cite the example of an economist who was critical of the euro and he was ostracized in the sense that he was being attacked as your anti-europe you know this is a very facile and superficial and i would say childish way of conducting a debate it's very common now, as people accuse their opponents of being anti- this or pro that, when they might have some actually some sound criticisms. and he did. he had some he had sound criticism of the Maastricht criteria of the actual cost of the euro, and he was ostracized. Anyway, he turned out to be right because it, it, the crisis, the economic crisis that struck Italy when it did, was devastating. certainly uh, in some of the more economically weaker regions in the south, it was there was a deindustrialization has occurred. The rise of China contributed to the deindustrialization, but so did the euro because it has an overvalued currency, which made many products uncompetitive in the international market. So the crisis hit, and then the, the parties that made these promises, by many people, they were deemed to be responsible, they were delegitimized, and this helped to increase populism in Italy. So populism in Italy was very much the a, a consequence of several crises, the Eurozone crisis being one of them, certainly the five-star movement, which went from being a small movement led by a comedian online, just his blog, that's it, and went from that to winning elections, to be not, not winning a majority, but winning enough, winning the most votes. One of the reasons was it, it criticized the Euro. It promised a referendum on the Euro. It wanted to leave the Euro. It criticized Germany's management of the euro. It criticized Brussels. It made many Italians feel proud because there was this, a sense of defiance against some of the pressures emanating from, say, from Brussels, from Berlin, from Paris. There's one event that I remember very vividly, a government of Silver Berlusconi, which was elected, uh, it was a democratically elected government. His government had to resign because during a press conference, Germany and France mocked him, saying basically saying they had little faith in him or at least communicating, they had little faith in his ability to carry out reforms. Subsequently, there was a market panic, and people thought that Italy would go bankrupt. And so he was pressured to resign. He did. And he was replaced by a prime minister named Mario Monti, who was kind of almost a caricature of a... Techn- he was a technocrat, He, you know, very soft-spoken professor, a very kind man. But I mean, he, he wasn't elected. Initially, he was very popular, but uh, later, support for him collapsed. He, but he was selected in part because... He was the candidate that was preferred by markets, by Brussels, by Berlin. And so the Five Star Movement said, okay, this, is, this shows that democracy is a farce here. It's a farce that uh, a democratically elected leader can be basically overthrown because of pressure coming from foreign capitals and financial markets. And then there's another populist party on the right. Five Star Movement is more on the left. There's one on the right called the Lega, and they, they too saw a huge increase in support. But they were also fueled by the migration crisis, not only the Eurozone crisis. And in fact, it was these two crises together that fueled populism in Italy. But the migration crisis came later, that was in 2015. The Eurozone crisis was started shortly after the the, the subprime housing crisis in the US in 2007-2008. Yeah, the, the Eurozone crisis started shortly after that.
1: So all of which uh, uh, lends credence to your subtitle in uh, Chapter 5, the euro helped to disincentivize reform. Initially, yeah, it yeah. did. Hey, i want to spend all our time on the first book. You've appeared many times on Canadian television over the years as an expert to help journalists uh, parse the nuances of yeah. European political and financial issues, particularly on CTV news. In your book, Eurozone Politics, the concept of discourse, figures prominently, as, as you have shared and represents on the ground, as well as in theory, both a relevant and influential uh, variable. As banal a point as that is, it strikes me as little wonder that a major media organization like CTV would tap into um, your expertise on institutions and politics of the EU and the Euro. This then, in turn, I think, puts you in a position to influence the general public and their interpretations of the narratives and current political discourse. All of which, I think, adds a level of authority to your argument, especially with regard to how you convey your understanding of the media role in the propagation of political discourse on topics like EU integration. Um, I shared with you uh, an article from the World Politics Review written recently by a lecturer in European Studies at King's College in, in London, uh, titled Deep Space Nine versus Warhammer, uh, The Battle for the EU's Soul Has Begun. Andrew Clarkson is the author. He, he argues that the parameters of debate surrounding the future of the EU need to be reassessed, uh, given that, for instance, Italian Prime Minister Giorgia Maloney's Brothers of Italy are now actively shaping European integration rather than trying to sabotage it. Clarkson goes on to assert that for all the differences among Christian Democrats, liberals, Greens, and social Democrats over such issues as environmental sustainability or labor market regulations, they share an underlying consensus when it comes to the democratic foundations of any form. Of European political union, yet even as Maloney and other far-right leaders try to expand their influence in the EU, their pursuit of discriminatory policies toward migrants and LGBTQ+ communities at home is an indication that they have not abandoned an authoritarian vision for Europe's future that could put the rule of law at risk. And end a quote there. Hey, do you find the article's premise compelling? That is, the battle for the EU soul has begun? Not really. I
2: don't. I think the article is dramatizing and sensationalizing because this is what a lot of journalism opinion pieces do. He's not a journalist. He's an academic, but he's he's writing an opinion piece. He's not writing an academic piece. And when you write an opinion piece, one of the ways that you capture the reader's attention is by creating clear morality tales of good guys and bad guys and creating the impression of the stakes being existential. And I I see this more as an attempt to capture readers' attention than serious analysis. I'll be, I'll be honest. You know, you know, as an academic, I try to objectively focus or look at processes and structures. Uh, This is how I approach the subject, rather than, you know, looking at it as a spectacle kind of like a wrestling match where you have good guys and bad guys and we you know this is why i'm with and that's who you're with and are you with the good guys or are you with the bad guys you know that's
1: yeah right uh, well so yeah, this appeal yeah, yeah. so clarkson's appeal to analogy well let's say uh, on the one hand could, could be taken as an interesting way to try to come to terms with eu integration issues but there's a kind of a caricaturing going on here this idea that Indeed. right deep Star Trek Deep Space Nine for the left of center and and Warhammer computer gaming as representative of the uh, far right extremism. How do you parse this use of analogy? And and I quote, the worldview of democratically oriented parties could be described as a Star Trek Deep Space Nine vision for Europe. By contrast, the hierarchical authoritarianism that still permeates far-right parties that have nonetheless come to terms with European integration comes closer to the relentless dystopia embodied in the storylines of the Warhammer 40k tabletop war game. Okay, so he, he talks about Georgia Maloney. Georgia Maloney
2: has been governing mostly from the center. I disagree with her, but I would not call her an authoritarian You know, she was democratically elected. She's respecting all the rules of Italian democracy and European democracy in the sense that she is playing by the rules of the game. She's engaging in negotiations and searching for compromises to find solutions to problems. So, you know, this is why it's hard to take these kinds of articles seriously, frankly, because as I mentioned earlier, it seems like they're rather than attempting to produce a serious analysis. They're rather trying to, you know, mobilize people to get on the good, the team of the good guys. And I would also add this: the radical right parties in Europe, they're not the majority. They're not even close to having the majority. the The majoritarian parties are still the mainstream left and right: uh, the PPP and the Social Democrats plus Renew. But nonetheless, they, whatever their ideology, whatever the ideology, they they are constrained by institutions. So what this means is. They can, even if they express something extreme, they cannot carry out their wishes. Because European politics, for the most part, involves cooperation and compromise with other parties. Because no very few parties are able to win majorities on their own. And so they have to engage in coalitions and engage in negotiations. And this always involves a give and take, and it almost always involves a moderation of the parties. This was clearly seen in the case of Italy and Georgia George Maloney she has aligned with mainstream actors on questions like Ukraine, on questions like migration. She hasn't been very aggressive on migration at all. She's actually working with Ursula von der Leyen, the president of the EU Commission, which is the closest thing they have to a president. She's working closely with her to find a solution to the problem of migration. And migration has increased under Maloney. Irregular migration has increased under Maloney. So she's obviously not the little Mussolini that's going to open fire on harmless uh, migrants trying to
1: reach Italian shore She's not that at all. Right. You've answered the, the question I didn't actually ask that I, that I wanted to was, what's your reaction to the author's approach in this article? And I knew you'd have something to say about it, given your ties uh, with Italy. Let's move on, because uh, we want to get yeah. to your second book. Your 2023 co-edited book with a colleague from Hebrew University of Jerusalem, Daniel Weiner populist foreign policy, regional perspectives of populism in the international scene, has overlapping institutional themes uh, with your first book. And I'm not sure you agree with that, but I I'm going to throw that out there. More importantly, I wanted to see or to ask you if you could share some of the backstory uh, about your relationship uh, with your co-editor, um, who is also an international relations professor and. How you came together over shared interests in populism and political science uh, more generally.
2: Every year I present my work at the International Studies Association, uh, which is based in the U.S. Most conferences are in the U.S. The next one is actually in six weeks in San Francisco, and I'll be presenting there. And I'm looking forward to it, looking forward to visiting San Francisco again. I haven't been there in 10 years. So these conferences are opportunities to connect with like-minded scholars and the conference that occurred uh, three years ago was completely online because of the pandemic. And I did a presentation. I got an email, I think the next day or shortly after, from Daniel saying, oh, I, your your work looks interesting and here's my work. So I read his work and it was I was struck by how complimentary they were. As it happened that week or a week later, I can't remember exactly, but it was in that period, I get an offer from Palgrave McMillan to write a book on the subject because I I had published an article on populism and foreign policy in Italy. And it's one of my most cited articles. And it's one of my more original articles uh, in terms of my contribution to the to the discipline. And somebody from Palgrave Macmillan read it and they said, This is really great, and we we would like you to write a book and we offer you this contract to write a book on it. And so my original idea was to write a just a single authored manuscript. Uh, now, the thing is, it would have been very limited because I could write about European populism. I can also write about populism in the US. I'm very familiar with US politics. But I mean, populism is a global phenomenon. And so I would not be able to write about populism in other parts of the world, such as the Middle East, Africa, Asia, South America. Anyway, Daniel's an expert on South America and the Middle East. And we communicated about it. And I said, Okay, let's do something together. And we can try to do something that captures the global character of populism, and that is we'll have chapters on every major region of the world, Northern Europe, Western Europe, which includes Southern Europe, and Eastern Europe. So there's three chapters. There's one on North America, on the Trump phenomenon. There's one on Latin America. There's one on Africa. There's one on Oceania, one on the Middle East. There's one on India, uh, South Asia. And so Daniel and I together wrote the the introduction, the conclusion, and one chapter on Southern Europe, which is an area that I'm an expert on, and he, he could contribute because he's knowledgeable about Spain. I led the entire project, including looking for scholars who are experts in the regions, and it was relatively easy to find scholars in most regions of the world except Africa, because there's there's very little research, in fact, on populism in Africa, relatively speaking. But eventually, I, I found some scholars, and, and we were able to include uh, populism in Africa. I also took the lead in editing all the chapters and in ensuring a coherence and consistency from top to bottom. I also organized an online conference where the contributors were invited to present their uh, work and receive feedback. So as a chief editor, I led all these phases. And it was a peer
1: project, and it was finally completed, and it was published uh, last year. That's a lot of work. And you guys write about, and I quote, the populist turn. How do you understand and describe this phenomenon? Can, can you share with listeners some key examples? And how do you distinguish a populist foreign policy from a non-populist one?
2: So that's one of the major questions of the book. And, you know, populist parties tend to be different from non-populist or mainstream parties. And it's now a global phenomenon, whereas before it was not. One of the defining characteristics of populism is that it's a revolt against the establishment. Now, the establishment takes different forms in different regions and countries. So this is why it was important to have chapters on different regions, precisely because it would allow a better systematic comparison between different populists and different establishments. So, for example, in, in you know in the U.S., as you're w- well aware, the establishment may include the deep state. It may it may include the uh, the financial sector. It may include uh, Washington D.C. and all the The mainstream politicians and their connections in various industries, this would be the establishment in the US, in, say, Africa and French-speaking countries. The establishment is mostly those elites that are aligned with France and Europe. In Europe, the establishment would be those elites who are aligned with Brussels, for example. So populism is almost always a revolt against these establishments. And then they influence policymakers. That is the decision to act, the decision to distribute resources. And this is this is true domestically and internationally. The one most listeners might be most familiar with is the Trump. Trump is a populist. And when he came to power, he threatened to withdraw the U.S. from NATO. He withdrew the U.S. from the Trans-Pacific Partnership. He was very critical of Germany. He walked away from the American trade agreement and forced Justin Trudeau and, and the president of Mexico to sign a new one. You know, so... In our book, we focus almost exclusively on the decisions that they make in relation to international actors. So populists decide domestically and internationally, and there's a ton of research on their decisions in the domestic realm, whether it's uh, related to the courts, whether it's related to the media, whether it's related to public services, whether it's related to distributional questions. Our work mostly Excuse that uh, that dimension of politics. We look at foreign policy decision making, and we discover that populist parties they do often uh, make decisions in the in the international realm which are very different from those of their predecessors. For example, they're willing; they more willing to be confrontational with the so-called establishment in Europe. That would be Brussels. They were they're more willing to risk, for example, crashing out of the common currency, which is what happened in. In Greece, it happened in in Italy. In in Spain, populists, they became uh, members of a coalition. So they didn't take full power, but they were a member of the coalition of the government that took power. And they were able to influence certain decisions in the realm of international security. For example, they're very suspicious of NATO, just as Trump is. It's interesting because populists in Spain that are are skeptical of NATO are left-wing populists, whereas Trump is right-wing. And yet, their criticisms of NATO are very similar. Well, Trump complains about spending, and they're not spending enough, and these kinds of things. But still, they're both critical of NATO, right? And this is something that it, we, we show in the book is arguably distinctly populist uh, foreign policy, which occurs because of populism as a phenomenon. So it's not reducible to right or left. It's not reducible to material questions like economic costs or gains. And it, it follows from the populist understanding of politics of international relations.
1: So in that sense, it is a useful category of analysis, a binding thread that runs through the chapter selections deals like on a meta level with the need to assert that populist foreign policy, as you just said, is a category of political analysis with a value of its own. Can you share with us a bit about of the importance of linking the chapters by describing or defining populist foreign policy? You note in the book, this is actually a more challenging task than at first it appears. Well, why sure. is this the case, and, and how is it crucial uh, to your larger project?
2: Yeah, because populism as a category interacts with other social phenomena like political power. So, for example, Trump is a populist, but he took power in one of the world's mo- or the world's most powerful country. This is obviously very different from a populist taking power in Greece. For example, Greece is a, Greece is a very small country in Europe's periphery, and so we see parallels, say, between populists in the U.S. and populists in Greece, but because of power structures, the outcomes will not be the same. This is why a systematic comparison between different regions and different contexts helps to illuminate how these intervening factors like power, like culture, like ideology, like sometimes, for example, the left and right ideological spectrum is helpful for understanding. Left and right wing populists agree on many things. For example, t- they tend to be very skeptical of globalization. They tend to be very skeptical of trade. They tend to have a non interventionist foreign policy. They tend to be very skeptical of, say, what many call the international liberal order, that is, the designs of people in Washington to enforce a kind of order around the world. Populists tend to be very skeptical of this. But then there are some differences that, that can be traced to, for example, underlying ideolo- ideology like left or right. So for example, left-wing populists are more favorable to adopting measures to stop climate change. So in this sense, they're very much in accord with mainstream parties, whereas right-wing populists are very skeptical of climate change. So one thing they have in common, left-wing and right-wing populists, is that they're very skeptical of experts of all kinds, foreign policy experts, political experts, economic experts, but ideology can sometimes determine, okay, which experts they're, they're skeptical of. So left-wing, left-wing populists might be very skeptical of foreign policy experts, whereas right-wing populists might be more skeptical of, say, climatologists, for example. When you have a larger sample, this is a scientific principle that is true for all research. The larger the sample, the more you can distill patterns. And the more you can distill patterns, the more you can reveal what is causing what. The more you can highlight, okay, this factor is factors more important here than it is there. And this, this helps to generate new questions that other researchers build on, which is exactly what is happening. One of my co-authors in that book, Angelos Grisolos, he's a pioneer in the study of populism foreign policy. He's probably one of the first or the first. And then there was one of the authors of the chapter on Asia, Sandra Dostraday. She also is a pioneer. That is, she was one of the first. The first articles on populism foreign policy probably appeared in 2017, 2018, and it was they who were the first. In mine appeared shortly after, but now it's exploded. There are hundreds now of of articles on the subject, and they're just increasing.
1: As we talked a little bit about, uh, the search for a consensual theoretical ground for populist foreign policy, it can't be separated from the heated debates around the understanding of the phenomenon of populism, as you put it. On the one hand, and the sub-discipline of foreign policy analysis, on the other hand. In other words, since the study yes. of PFP inherits an essentially contested concept, populism, it must also inherit, embrace, and reflect the various approaches it spawned. Can you talk to us a bit uh, about the importance of inheriting the contested nature of populism in this field of research? So scholars disagree on
2: the ontology of populism. So most will know what ontology is. It's just it's through the philosophical concept for the nature of a phenomenon. So is populism just a discourse? Is it a is it an ideology which is different from a discourse? It is it a a strategic calculation, which is about gaining votes? Is it a psychological phenomenon? And so Scholars have been writing about populism for decades, not populism foreign policy. This is, a very, this is a very recent turn in scholarship, looking at the relations with international politics. But populism as a phenomenon itself has been under study for decades. As I mentioned at the beginning of this interview, it's an ancient phenomenon. It has always existed. Most scholars have, have focused on Latin American populism because Latin American populism goes, goes back to the 19th century. There, there's also been populism in the U.S. in the 19th century. And so scholars have this topic and they disagree on the nature of populism. And so these disagreements will influence scholarship on populism and international relations. And so one of the contributions that we make in the book is to map these disagreements on the ontological character of populism and then identify how specific ontological ideas of populism lead to specific hypotheses, so. So, for example, if uh, populism is reducible to a psychological phenomenon, it would lead to the study of things like the personal biography of a populist. What is it that makes a populist in the, in the personal psychological sense? Whereas others who look at populism as an ideology, for example, ideologies are often developed to interpret problems and solutions in society. Scholars who work with that concept. Are more likely to look at some of the societal determinants of populism, such as uh, the rise of inequality, which existing ideologies inadequately interpreted and acted upon. So, in summary, how you define populism will determine how you study populism. And this includes whether you study domestic politics or international politics. So, we asked each author to position themselves in relation to this literature. Sure. And it's also foreign policy. Also, there, there are different, there's a, there's a huge literature on foreign policy. And, Foreign policy scholars also disagree how to investigate foreign policy. Do, do you investigate it in terms of a process? What are the processes of foreign policy? Do you investigate it in terms of the outcomes? What are the outcomes in foreign policy? Do you investigate it in terms of uh, the distributional effects? So this mapping that we introduced in the in the, the theoretical chapter helps to clarify where scholars stand or where they can position themselves. It helps the conversation. So, for example, if I'm working on the assumption that populism is a psychological phenomena, and somebody at a conference who I'm, I'm engaged in a debate with is operating on the assumption that it's a discursive phenomenon, our discussion would, would be more fruitful if we actually bring those assumptions to the fore. Those assumptions would then be the, the topic of discussion. Otherwise, we just, we're just just ta- talking past each other. And so uh, this is one of the major contributions of the edited volume.
1: Sure. I think the uh, introductory chapter with Daniel is. Um... In and of itself is is worth the price of admission, as they say. And you also have a section called "Under What Conditions Does Populist Foreign Policy Matter." You open that section with multipolar power structures. That uh, leads into another subsection called domestic variables, followed by ideological factors, and then finally uh, you close out the introductory overview with policy domains. So the lot there that people will find interesting in your field, your volume's of final chapter titled Conclusions, Populist Foreign Policy in a Comparative Perspective. And like the key introductory chapter, you wrote this, as mentioned before, with Daniel Wehner. You guys opened by pointing out that the book's goal was to help answer two highly relevant questions to global geopolitics. The first was, what is distinctive about populist foreign policy, PFP? And the second, what are the domestic and international factors that enable and constrain PFP? Well, we've been talking a bit about that. So let me kind of position it this way Professor Grilando, can you make the case here why you and your colleague, Dr. Wehner, believe that the answers to those questions Are both relevant and critically important, and in turn highlighting the significance of your field of study, populist foreign policy.
2: Indeed, because I think the populist phenomenon is here to stay. Even if they don't win elections, they have a lot of support at the domestic level, and so their ideas matter. Their ideas about domestic or international politics, but of course, for me, it's international politics. Their ideas matter because of how influential they are. There are several important elections coming up, uh, mainly the American one. For example, if, if Trump were to win, we can expect that he would adopt foreign policies, which would be very different from uh, not only his predecessor, but even mainstream Republican, because he's a populist. And this is one of the things that the chapter on the Trump shock highlights. And so it, it helps us to understand the events that are on the horizon, elections that will occur very soon, and even ones that could potentially lead to a populist victory. Like, for example, in France, you know Emmanuel Macron, he won the last election, uh, the presidency. The presidency, but his opponent got, I think, forty-three percent. And so this highlights that almost half of French support her. And then there were legislative elections afterwards because in the French system, they have legislative elections several months after the presidential ones. And in those elections, populists of the left and right, they won a majority. They won more votes than the mainstream parties. So in France, in the future, there's a good possibility that they will take power. So if they do take power, they will start to make decisions in the international system. And understanding populism helps us to understand what kinds of decisions they will make. And perhaps in some cases, ADAPT, one example that comes to mind is NATO, Trump is, like most populists, he's very skeptical of NATO. In European countries, many are are very committed to NATO. As far as I'm concerned, this is a mistake. The populist phenomenon should teach them that they have to develop their own strategic autonomy in the realm of international security. They cannot rely on the vicissitudes of American electoral politics for their security. This is something that I've observed through the years. You know, when Trump won, many, uh, many in Europe catastrophized. They said, oh, it's the end of NATO. Then Biden won, and Biden once again committed to NATO. And, and for many in Europe, there was a sense of relief. This is not a healthy way to manage things. That is where a country's or a continent's security depends on electoral outcomes over which it has no control. So because there is a chance that Trump will take power, and because he's a populist, it would be opportune for Europe to move towards autonomy in the realm of security. So it doesn't have to rely on anybody, whether the U.S. or anybody else. And it would, this would allow it to be able to defend its interests. So populism as a phenomenon will matter for the future of international politics. And there are some in Europe who have the vision to recognize, okay, we have to do something now rather than wait until some catastrophe happens and then we have no choice, we can start to prepare now. The populist phenomenon, I think, should encourage European leaders and others to become more autonomous to develop a kind of strategic autonomy in the realm of security, so they're not overly dependent on other powers, especially the U.S.
1: Well, well, I know you're talking to me from the Shanghai Library, and hey, yeah. what are you
2: working on at the moment? I'm working on a paper on France's relations with its former colonies in Africa. I have three presentations coming up: one in Shanghai at the end of March, and the one in the U.S. in early April, and one in Germany in mid-June, and this paper will be the basis of these presentations. And I've also been invited by a journal to submit the paper for publication before it's even written. But so I have to write it. It's about the phenomenon of the, the Francafrique, it's France's relations with its former colonies, and how the changing international landscape is leading to changes in the relationship between France and its former colonies. The populist phenomenon matters there too, because there have been revolts against the establishment in several countries that were former French colonies. The the establishment is the the governments and the elites aligned with, with French interests. And so there too, we're seeing the importance of populism and what it means for international politics.
1: Interesting. Well, thanks so much for taking the time to talk with us today, Philip, about your books, academic career, and your thoughts on geopolitics more broadly. Again, Professor Galando's first book, Eurozone Politics, Perception and Reality in Italy, the UK and Germany, was published by Rutledge in 2016. His most recent effort, a co-edited volume with Professor Daniel Weiner at Hebrew University of Jerusalem, entitled Populist Foreign Policy, Regional Perspectives of Populism in the International Scene, published last year by Palgrave Macmillan. Interesting and relevant readings. Philip, appreciate it. Thanks so much for uh, taking the time. We'll let you get back to it. Thanks, Keith. My pleasure. And uh, we'll speak soon. Take care. Take care.
2: 18- Plus.